This morning we're going to be finishing chapter 19 in 1 Kings, being introduced to one of the major characters in the book of Kings, the prophet Elisha. We'll be in 1 Kings 19, verse 19, and then we'll read verses 20 and 21 as well. Before we read, let's pray together. Lord, we desire to build our lives upon the rock, upon the rock of your word, and not upon the sinking sand of our own thoughts and feelings and the spirit of the age. So we pray that as we come to your word, you would help us to build ourselves upon it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings 19, 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. I can remember vividly from when I was a kid, these uh, publisher's clearinghouse commercials on the television. Maybe you're familiar. They all really went the same way. You'd have a few well-dressed people who would come up to a door to an, an unsuspecting household, and they would have this very large vanity check for a, for a very large amount of money, and they would, they would knock on the door, and when the person answered, they'd have the big check with the big number right there, and the person would immediately know that they had won a very large amount of money. And they would begin to hyperventilate, and they would, they would bend over and do this laugh cry where you're so excited, you're not sure how you're supposed to feel. And this person would all of a sudden instantaneously go from, from an ordinary day to an extraordinary day. So it is with the prophet Elisha. He's having a, an ordinary day. He's in his father's field plowing with the oxen as he had probably done all kinds of times and many years since his youth. And it's just an ordinary day, but then it becomes extraordinary because along the road comes the prophet Elijah, and this is a well-known figure in the land of Israel. He's hated by the king and the queen, but he's loved by the few who were left who had been faithful to the Lord. But Elijah has not just come by. Elijah has come specifically for Elisha. Elisha is the man that is on his mind. And suddenly, the ordinary day becomes the extraordinary and more than that then Elijah takes his cloak and he whisks it over Elisha's shoulders that seems like an odd behavior to take a garment of yours and throw it on someone else why would he do that but Elisha knows immediately why it is that, that Elijah has taken his cloak and put it upon him Elijah has just summoned him into divine service Elijah has just called Elisha to follow him. 
He has called Elisha to become his servant and then in time as well his successor. And as far as, the, as far as Elisha is concerned, the call comes out of nowhere. He did not wake up that day saying, I'm going to go plow the field and the prophet's going to come and call me into divine service. For Elisha, it's a total surprise, but it is by no means a surprise to Elijah, nor is it a, a surprise to God himself. If you remember just back to the, the previous passage we looked at, Elijah had Elijah had gone up on the mountain of God after he'd been in some sort of a, a very discouraged mood. And he goes up the mountain of God, and there he lays his case against the people of Israel. And the Lord had told Elijah, among other things, that he was to go and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, to be his successor, to be the, the new prophet in his, in his realm. And so Elijah goes and does precisely that. So while it is a surprise to Elisha that he is called into prophetic service, it is no surprise to God. That God in his providence knows the end from the beginning. We can take great comfort in that. We can take great comfort in knowing that though there are many surprises in the course of our lives, there are no surprises in our lives which surprise God. And one of the most famous and most beloved questions and answers in the Heidelberg Catechism speaks precisely to this. And the question is this, what do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And so it was with Elisha. But now the question becomes, how will Elisha respond? Elijah has done his duty. He has gone in obedience to the word of the Lord, and he has gone to Elisha. He has thrown his cloak over Elisha. But now how will Elisha respond? You see, for the people who have their door knocked on by the publisher's clearinghouse, there's really not much of a decision to make. When someone comes up to your door with a check for hundreds of thousands or, or millions of dollars, and they say, you've won, there's no thought of, I'm not so sure. You grab the check and you put it in the bank as soon as you can before they change their minds. But you see, Elisha goes the other way. Elisha was quite wealthy. He's wealthy enough to have 12 yoke of oxen and a field large enough to need 12 yoke of oxen to plow. In Israelite society, this puts him in the, the upper strata of Israelite society. He is, he is a wealthy man, and with that wealth would have come respect and honor in his community. And when Elijah comes and calls him to prophetic service, he's calling him to a life of poverty. To a life of being hunted and hated. To a life of utter dependence upon God each and every day for basic sustenance. 
This is the equivalent of going from driving a, a BMW or a, a tricked-out Jeep Wrangler to driving a, a 1989 Plymouth Caravel with the, with the fabric on the ceiling held up by duct tape. That was my first car. This is, in the eyes of the world, going backwards from the way that we usually think we should go. So how will Elisha respond? How would you respond? Look with me at the very first part of verse 20. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Elisha immediately responds. Now, for whatever reason, Elijah tossed the cloak over Elisha and then kept walking because Elisha has to run to catch up with Elijah. And he says, let me go kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. Now, now some people, even perhaps the majority of people, would criticize Elisha because he didn't run after Elijah and follow him right away. He asked to go back to his mother and his father. But to those critics... I would answer two things. First, it's very easy to criticize somebody else when I wonder how we would act in a similar situation. I suspect Elisha follows through much more quickly than the majority of us would, but also it's more than that. When Elisha goes to ask to kiss his father and mother goodbye, it's not merely a matter of being sentimental. But to kiss one's father and mother goodbye is to sever that relationship permanently. It is not, of course, to dishonor them, but it is to say, my primary relationship is no longer with you. I am now engaged primarily in a different relationship, that one being here with Elijah. For Elisha, there is no going back. He follows enthusiastically. But Elijah is not very enthusiastic about what he has just done to Elisha. And we see that in the second half of verse 20. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? You see this with the prophets from time to time. They're not always very excited about what they do. I don't think any of the prophets rival Jonah in his lack of, an, of, of excitement for what the Lord had called him to. But here, Elijah says to Elisha, go back, what have I done to you? He, Elijah remembers the broom tree. He remembers how he had run to the broom tree as far away from Jezebel as he could get and laid down under it and said, Lord, I want to die. He remembers being hunted and hated. He knows that the life he has just called Elisha to is one of conflict. In fact, the Lord had told Elijah exactly that, that Elijah was told to go call Elisha, and the Lord had said, those who escape the sword of Jehu, Elisha will put to death. This is not a, a fun prophetic ministry, very few were. This is a prophetic ministry of judgment. Elijah does not relish coming to this young man in his affluence and turning his life upside down. But Elisha is 
Elisha is rather enthusiastic. We see that in verse 21. So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. For Elisha, there is no going back. He's essentially burned his inheritance. He's taken the cows that pulled the plows and he's, and he's cooked them. He's taken the plows themselves and he's broken them apart for firewood for the cows. There's no going back. He's, he's sold the farm, so to speak. Now Elisha is all in. And he obeys the call which Elijah had given, and which the Lord had given. Kind of an obscure text. What's the point? I think there are two things we see here when we step back and put it into some context and begin to appreciate what exactly is going on here. The first thing is about Jesus, and the second thing is about ourselves. So it's probably good for us to start with Jesus. That's a good good rule of thumb. But the first thing we see here is that this is a a major turning point in God's redemptive plan. That here there is sort of a a passing of the torch or a, a handing off of the baton. Elijah's time is drawing near to its end, and Elisha's time is drawing near to its beginning. Now you'll remember that Elijah is a great prophet. That Elijah is mentioned multiple times in the New Testament He's spoken of as kind of a a big shot prophet. And in fact, when the Lord Jesus is up on the mountain, he's got these three disciples with him, and God desires to show just how great and glorious Jesus is when his his heavenly glory bursts forth in a moment of pure pure, uh, magnificence for his people. There are two Old Testament men speaking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. What an honor. What an honor to, in the moment of greatest glory in Jesus' pre-crucified ministry, to be one of the two men of all the millions who had lived before, to be one of the two men who would speak with Jesus in his moment of glory. Elijah is a great, great prophet. But he's not going to finish the job. Elijah is going to go before the job is finished. Elisha will finish the job. There are three specific times where this kind of a transition takes place in the Scriptures. And they all bear striking similarity to one another. And the first instance is between Moses and Joshua. And the second is between Elijah and Elisha. And the third is between John the Baptist and Jesus. Just consider some of these similarities. Moses, Elijah, and John the Baptist are all prophets. They all appear in the wilderness. They all preach a message of repentance. They all prepare the way for the one who will destroy God's enemies. They all anoint their successors. And they all die before the job is finished. And then the similarities between Joshua, Elisha, and Jesus. Joshua means the Lord saves. Elisha means God saves. Jesus means the Lord saves. 
all three of them finish work which they did not begin, but which was begun before. All three of them build their ministries upon a foundation laid by someone before them. Of course, Jesus says that John the Baptist is greater than all who had come before him. And so too, of course, Jesus is far greater than Joshua, far greater than Elijah, both because his mission is greater and more important and because his person is greater and more important. But this teaches us something about Jesus. That Jesus is the one who will finish the work. That he is the one that when he says it is finished, it is finished. That he is the one who will bring defeat to all of God's enemies. Who will bring God's people all the way into the promised land. He is God's true Savior. And so when we look at Elijah to Elisha, we see a mirror of John to Jesus. And as Elisha was the finisher So too, Jesus is our finisher. He finishes the work that we might be saved. But then we see as well a second thing. We see something for ourselves, which is that we see here a radical call to discipleship. Elijah calls Elisha to divine service, and Elisha immediately knows this is not something to toy around with. When Elijah throws the cloak over him, Elisha doesn't say, can I have 30 days to think it over? Let me go and have dinner with my parents and we're going to talk about it and we'll decide together with it whether this is the right thing for me and, and for our family. Let me, let me go and give me, give me a week to pray about it or let me talk to my friends or let me seek the wisdom of my priest. He doesn't do anything. He knows that when he is called to follow, he is to follow immediately without delay. Jesus calls his disciples to follow the same way. If you look at Mark 1, verses 16 to 20, we read this. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Again, no time for contemplation. No time for a family meeting. No time for going to the synagogue. No time for making a cost-benefit analysis spreadsheet. Only time for obedience. Bye, Pops. I'm going with Jesus. Can you imagine what, what Zebedee must have thought when he's in the boat going about his ordinary life and this itinerant preacher named Jesus, whom he had probably heard of, comes by and says to his sons, relatively uneducated men, not, certainly not the kind of disciples the average rabbi had, and said, you follow me, and they left with barely saying goodbye. But that's the kind of obedience that Jesus calls us to. He calls us to follow him 
without question. And we see that Jesus, Jesus holds up Elisha as a picture of the right response to the call to discipleship. He doesn't mention him by name, but he certainly alludes to him. If you move forward a little bit, if you move forward a little bit in Luke's Gospel to Luke 9, we read this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now I'll leave an explanation of, and an exposition of Jesus saying to let your father be buried by somebody else for a different time. But notice what is said in that very last line. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Elisha was hands off the plow. Elisha burned the plow that he might follow God's call to discipleship. Elisha is a picture of the kind of response that we are called to have when the Lord comes and calls us to something. Because Then later in Luke's Gospel, we read this radical definition of discipleship. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first? And del deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus saying, you have to actually hate people? That's not what he's saying. He's saying you have to be willing to leave behind anything and everything to follow what Christ calls you to. You must be willing to leave everything, to kiss parents goodbye, to burn the inheritance, to miss important events like funerals in order to follow him. We're a family-oriented church. That's a good thing. A healthy church is built largely upon healthy families. But being family-oriented becomes a weakness when our families prevent us 
from engaging with our neighbors and engaging in the work of God in the way that Christ calls us to. So how about you? What if the Lord called you to leave behind mother or father, or son or daughter, grandpa or grandma, grandchildren? What if he called you to leave behind those things? Would you be fit for the kingdom of God? Are you willing to follow with the kind of obedience that Elisha followed with? Or the kind of obedience that Peter, Andrew, and James, and John followed with? It's not for me to tell you what you are called to leave behind, thankfully. I wouldn't be a very popular person if it was. But it is for you to take the dollars out of your ears and take the grandchildren out of your ears and listen carefully to what it is the Lord is calling you to. And then to be willing to leave all those things behind if that's what it takes to follow Christ. call to discipleship is rarely glamorous. The Lord calls very few people to be Billy Graham and preach to stadiums of thousands and tens of thousands. I suspect none of us will ever preach on television or write books that people will read. The call to discipleship is often ordinary. And so it was with Elisha, at least at first, we see that the very last sentence in our passage says, Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. Elisha became his attendant. In 2 Kings 3, we'll read that Elisha is referred to one, referred as one who, who poured water on Elijah's hands. He became a servant, a hand washer. He became the runner boy who went and did this and went and did that. He gave up wealth for poverty. He gave up hearing, yes, sir, right away, sir, to be able to be the one who said, yes, sir, right away, sir. He gave up being the upper crust of Israelite society to be a hunted and hated prophet by kings and queens. He gave it up for being ordinary. Where's the honor in that? Where's the worth in that? Where's the glory in that? The honor and the worth and the glory of discipleship is found not in the service itself, but in the one who is served. The worth of discipleship is found in the magnificence of God. It is, not, it is not we who give worth and value to discipleship. It is God, it is Christ who makes discipleship worthy and glorious. 
when I was thinking through this this week, I was reminded of a scene from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which isn't about divorce at all. It's, it's a fictional work about a, a man who has a dream, and he, he goes into heaven. C.S. Lewis's conception of heaven, a, a physical place, actually more physical than earth, but you can read the book to get the details on that. But in, the, in his journey through this heavenly place, he meets all kinds of people, but the, but the most glorious, the greatest of the people he meets is this woman. And to her right and to her left sing children. And they dance and they sing and, and light emanates from them. And there are giants who throw flower petals in her path. So wherever she goes, she walks on flower petals. And the, the main character says to his guide, this woman must have been famous. And the guy says, no. Well, she, she must have been important. She must have been well known. He says, she must have been great, says yes. But you'll need to know that fame in this country is different than fame on earth. Her name was Sarah Smith. She was an ordinary person. But every person who came into contact with her felt loved. And every, every boy and girl who interacted with her knew that they were appreciated and went home and and loved their parents just a little bit more. And every man who interacted with her went home and loved his wife just a little bit more. She was faithful in the ordinary, regular, day-to-day -day work of being a disciple. And she was great in the kingdom. There's a profound insight in that. But the glory of our discipleship is found not in the eyes of the world. Being great in the eyes of the world is fleeting. The glory of our discipleship is being great in the kingdom of God. And that is not fleeting. It is of eternal joy. Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Discipleship will often seem ordinary, but it is not. It is an extraordinary service to a great and glorious God. So when the Lord calls you to whatever it may be, whether it be moving overseas or whether it be simply loving your neighbor, whatever He calls you to, Obey as Elisha did, right away, all the way, and as we say in, in my house, with a happy heart, it will be worth it. It will be worth it to follow the call to discipleship, whether it be great or small, it will be worth it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that as the one who has made us and breathed life itself into us, we know that you, you are due every part of us. That every breath we take and every day we live is given by you to us to be used for your glory.
And we repent of using our time for ourselves, not considering how we might improve it for you. And we pray that whatever it is that stops up our ears to your call, we might pry it out. Your spirit might pry it out. That you would allow us to hear clearly whatever it is you would call us to, whether near or far, great or small. And it would put in our hearts by the work of your spirit a joyful desire to follow at whatever cost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.